Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Ben Virgo, who's the Director of Christian Heritage London. He is a speaker and a regular tour guide, tour guide operator, tour history, walking history tour, we'll talk about that, around the city uh, where he recounts stories from history about the amazing things that the Lord has done in our nation's capital. Um, he's also uh, He also has his own podcast on their website, Christian Heritage London, which is well worth checking out. Uh, and they're very good to follow on social media, Ben. I love all your posts, very inspiring quotes of people from the past. Uh, ben studied classics at University College London and is church planting in East London. Ben, great to have you with us. Hello. Bless you, Jez. It's lovely to see you and hear you. <laughs> and we're recording this from Seaford, which is where you spent your formative years. Yeah, I was there until eight and it's etched into the inside of my head. <laughs> it sounds like you'd like to get it out, but you can't. <laughs> I miss, I was, I go to the Sussex Hills in my daydreams. I miss that. Yes. Um, Tolkien, no doubt, based a lot of his hobbits on characters from this part of the land. Well, Ben, um, we're really looking forward to hearing all about the work of Christian Heritage London and uh, perhaps going on a bit of an audiobook tour around some of your favourite sites in London to inspire us and whet people's appetites for some of the walking tours that you do do. I've been with you um, at least two or three times walking around the streets of London with the Impact students. But to kick things off, I'd love to just catch up and find out what you've been up to since the pandemic broke. A lot of your work has been or was involved with walking around the city, giving people history lessons. And then the government said, you can't go outside your house. Um, so I'd love to know what, how things have been for you and what some of the things the Lord's taught you over the, over the past pandemic. Gosh, yeah, well, it, it, it has been an extraordinary, for everyone, it's been an extraordinary time, hasn't it? But I went from a time when I was trying somehow to navigate the massive demand of people who were coming to London to come through the walks that we give. And normally I would generally three or four times per week would be meeting a group of people on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral and I'd meet them for the first time, having been only an email contact when people asked to come on the walk. And there would be people from all over the world. I'd meet people from Australia, South Africa, Singapore, America, Canada, all over Europe. And they would meet each other for the first time. And you would find it would be quite extraordinary to see that as I started to tell them that, of course, uh, it was on the streets through which we were about to walk that William Wilberforce's life was changed, where Whitfield preached his first published sermon, where Wesley's heart was strangely warmed and so on. These people from all over the world, they would resonate. They would. These are the names that have inspired my life in thousands of miles away, Australia, Singapore, South Africa, America, all over the world. So normally I would be doing that throughout the week. And we went from that to nothing, to sitting at home and furlough. And that was a, an extraordinary change. I think when the books are written, though, they'll say all those people who said, if only I'd had time, I would X. <laughs> Ben, what this this before we jump into lessons from history, uh, as someone who I guess you have you have your foot and your mind in the past, and you can understand the things that people have experienced before, uh, and you're living very much in the present with the crises that everybody's going through and the challenges. What are some of your major concerns for the church 
Uh, is that too big a question? For, but for someone who may have just a thoughtful answer to something like that, what are some of the things that, that worry you, that you think concern well, you as you think about the church at, at this time? The people who are listening to your podcast will, will probably have um, a sympathy with what I'm about to say, because the reason that I have something to say about church history is because I have sat on the front row of church history. I lived in a home where we saw the development of a of a network of churches, which now stretches to over 2000 congregations, as I understand it, all over the world. And I remember hearing about, oh, another something else has grown, something else has joined and a, a challenge. And come on, we've got to see. And then sitting at the table with people who um, have seen the kinds of growth, which, frankly, you have to look into history to see parallels. And so I and I think your people listening to this will be able to resonate with that because they or hopefully they would, because, um, frankly, there, there isn't very much uh, going on out there in the world which which can which can compare with some of the great stuff which you get from New Frontiers and um, the, uh, the. The concern that I would have would be something you notice from history is that from you tend always to see that there is a pioneering generation that pushes through loving not their own lives unto death. I remember as a child, my dad predicting he wouldn't live beyond 55. He was pretty sure about that. Um, at that time, he would occasionally go behind the Iron Curtain where you would hear about horrifying things happening to believers in, um, in, in Hungary and so on. And he would go into that. He, he went not saying, how am I gonna get a career? Do you understand? He didn't, he didn't go saying, how can I get um, jobs, job satisfaction, job security? He wasn't thinking in those terms. He was thinking in terms of how can I glorify Christ? How can I get these people to see the beautiful, beautiful Jesus Christ? How can I proclaim him in such a way that they will see what I have seen? How can I get them to know him? And what concerns me, uh, as, you, as you ask the question, is that we have a generation coming through who doesn't know that. I once took a group around the British Museum who were from uh, a church in this country who, um, who had come from an Eastern, a former Eastern European country. Their parents, the parents of the kids who came on my tour had endured deep, horrifying hardship and pain. The kids had never seen anything like it. And the kids, they couldn't care less. I'm talking to them. And normally I've seen young people completely engaged with the stories, moved and deeply affected. These young kids, they just couldn't care less. However, there were two or three kids in the group and they were moved as I spoke and they were engaged throughout. They were the ones who had recently come into the country who still spoke English as a second language. And it, I think it serves as a parable of what we see now. Um, the, the significance of social media is that previously we used to be told, oh, this is what people think from one or two little voices, you know, the radio, the TV and the comedians would be terribly powerful and various TV shows everyone watched. And now because of social media, everyone can say what they think and can express their private outrage. And you will find people who, you'll, you find therefore new consensus. You find new rumors among the sheep and different winds blow. Let's go this way, let's go that way, let's go this way. What concerns me is that we have a generation coming through who haven't had 
bold pioneering leadership that said, look, I know, I know no one else is doing this, but let's go anyway, you know? Uh, well, it was great characters from history like Wilberforce who said, he said, look, we realize that we're too young to do and to, to know what we're doing. So we're gonna do it anyway. That is something you don't hear a lot of now. However, my own father's autobiography was called No Well-Worn Paths. And I think he exemplified something of, look, I know that the denominations are doing this, that, and the other. I know people are doing this, but I, I just don't see that in the Bible. So let's just do what the Bible's doing. <laughs> so to answer your question, I would say, um, I would say what concerns me is that we have uh, a generation who doesn't know what happened uh, even in recent church history and will tend not to explore, not to understand those things and will instead go for the very, very ephemeral uh, voices of our time mm. because i think what you touched on there it's, it's not that we don't have you know young people have always said i, I don't care what anyone's thinking i'm just going to do what i want to do but what's so rare is when people like wilberforce and your dad say let's do what the scriptures are saying you know that they they have a an anchor there that they are kind of held on to and driven by that whereas it seems to me there's lots of people saying let's try this let's try that perhaps because of the voices of social media there's so much chaos and confusion and there's not many voices saying let's let's go back to the scriptures and hold on to something something from there that we see what's fascinating in light of that jez i think also and i think you'll understand when i say this having spoken with you in the past is that there are people who perceive right how do we see what the bible says well, let's look at what people who believe the Bible are doing, right? And so we copy some other bloke in, you know, America or, you know, another country, Singapore. We say, let's copy that guy and not search what it says in the text. You see, I run the George Whitfield page on Twitter and I, I daily, I'm thinking, well, what should I put up today from Whitfield? What, what should I put up for what, what should I put up today? And it's clear as you read his sermons that what Whitfield was doing was as is now well documented in his uh, biographies, he was going through the Bible on his knees every day with Matthew Henry open, searching for Christ. As you read his sermons, yes, you do find some things, little stylistic things repeating, but you also find he's finding gold. He's finding gold everywhere. He's finding gold. Now, the thing about gold is it lasts. It outlasts iron. It outlasts wood. It lasts and that's the that's the issue. These these guys who went before, they said, "What does it?" As you, I think, very helpfully, you've made that a distinction there. These people weren't just people who said, "Oh, I've got an idea. Let's do that." They said, "What does what does it say here?" I was incredibly honoured recently to be asked to um, to put a, an endorsement on a book that's about to come out. It's just come out. The this the spiritual journals of William Wilberforce, the previously unpublished journals of William Wilberforce have now come out. And here's a man who, without any question, changed the world. Um, the abolition of slavery is not just a matter of opinion. <laughs> the abolition of slavery is a world-changing moment. And well, what, what, can you tell, what can you tell about the man who was so significant in that incredible phenomenon? Well, what you can tell, I can tell you about him is this. If you look in his journals, he's searching for Christ in his word. He's searching for Christ in his heart. He's searching to glorify Christ. And you find that on page after page after page. He's not looking to the left or the right. He's going after him. And he, uh, you, I encourage everyone to get a copy of it. 
if you can't follow my William Wilberforce Twitter page, which I also run, where I put up quotes from him on a daily basis, which just show you this man who changed the world was drinking deeply from the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, what difference does that make? Oh, it ends the slave trade in that man's instance. You know, Jesus said, if you want to bear fruit, you want to bear fruit. Yeah, I really, really want to bear fruit. Abide in me. And that's, that's, uh, that's not about singing a song. That's not about following what everyone else says. That's about, do you actually know Jesus? Are you looking for him? Are you searching for him? Are you, when you find him saying, well, this is the way we must go in, are you going that way? <laughs> so that's, uh, I hope that answers your question a bit. Yeah, that's really helpful and inspiring. You touched on two, two people there that um, have obviously played a large part in shaping your, yourself. Um, when, when did you first develop and cultivate a love of history and, um, and, who would you say has been some of those people in history past? Maybe is those two people that have had some of the biggest impact on you? Um, well, I didn't actually go looking for history as its own thing so much as I had been through, um, I had been through a, uh, a period of, of foolish, um, <laughs> I suppose you'd call it backsliding in my, uh, in my teenage years. I had been terribly ill and had, uh, I, I nearly died when I was 15 and um and uh, i used that as an excuse to rebel um and uh and then i was invited by john wimber of whom you may have heard he said he said to my dad he said how's ben and my dad says oh it's not great and he said uh, is is ben interested in music and my dad said only he's only interested in music i was in two bands at the time so he said, would Ben like to tour America with a band we have at the church at the moment? <laughs> so my dad, you know, uh, he's, John Wimber tells me he, he felt the Lord said to him twice, we need to get Ben over to America. And uh, so my dad says, do you want to go and tour America with a Christian rock band? And I kind of heard, would you like to tour America with a rock band? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah, who wouldn't? You know, I was working at Uncle Sam's in Brighton, which you may know, lovely hamburgers. And um, so I toured America. Now, night by night, they were incredible musicians. But the singer would just stand up night by night and he would just say, he just started to talk about the cross. And he would say, Jesus, you know, you often see a painting of Jesus. He looks like he's kind of fallen asleep on the cross. If you look in the Bible, it says his face was marred more than any man. His form beyond human likeness like one from whom men hide their faces. Now, he was saying this night by night. He was describing the comprehensive beating and destruction of Jesus Christ. And the guys in the band were not self-righteous. It was clear they just were living, well, he's my righteousness. He's my righteousness. And after a month, <laughs> I was one of the guys who went forward and... Um, and uh, that was the beginning. Now, I came back to England uh, from that. I was there for three months, just traveling with the band. I wasn't playing. I was just carrying stuff. But I came back to England. All I knew was the cross. All I knew was the cross. And I didn't get the, the emphases that were happening in the church. I just didn't understand a lot of stuff that was happening in the church. But my dad encouraged me, well, pick up this thing by Spurgeon. Try this thing by Luther, you see. And then I would find, hang on. Spurgeon he's only interested in the cross <laughs> yeah. and then Luther he's only interested in the cross and I started to see 
what Tim Keller has recently said so succinctly when he says the cross isn't the ABC, it's the A to Z. The gospel is the A to Z. And I started to realize everything has to be seen in the light of the cross. The, the, the Latin word for cross is crux. It's the crux. And that was, I, I wasn't looking for you know, <laughs> old men with beards. I was not in the least interested in history. I was looking at how this gospel has worked in the past. So that was my only interest. I, I never was really interested in um, history for its own sake. My dad would then in encourage me to read Lloyd-Jones, which, which changed my life. And... Um, Packer and Stott and so on, but um, I wanted to see, yeah, these. I want to see these guys who had believed this message in previous generations and what difference that had made. Mm, that's helpful, and actually, I think for people who, you know, I, I know from running the Gap Year Impact with um, eighteen to nineteen year olds, many of them get turned off when we talk about history. But actually, what you're describing is not history; it's just brothers and sisters in the faith who've seen something so pure and so beautiful drunk from the same fountain that you're drinking and you've realized this is this is the only source of life and so let's listen to everybody who's ever been who can really help feed us with this and quench our thirst with this and that changes the way you think of history actually because you realize it's actually we're, we're mining the treasures of the cross for the past two thousand years and the things that the lord's done in people's lives amen Absolutely wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? And I, the way, I love the way you're putting that, brothers and sisters, because there's something living. Your brother or your sister, what's so significant? There's a life. There's a life, you know. Well, if your brother or sister dies, it's devastating. Life, a living person. Yeah. And so you're talking about blokes who may not have lived for hundreds of years. And you say, he's got that same Jesus, the one who's not, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And all the other radicals who are saying, look at this wonderful message I've got about you know, whatever today's fad is, you say, you haven't got this. <laughs> well, Ben, when we've, uh, and you touched on it earlier, the start of your history tours, where people come from all over the world and you stand on the steps of St. Paul's. Um, talk us through maybe a, a kind of overview of an audiobook version of where you go. So what's some of the things you see and who are, what are some of the standout places and people that you talk about and see? Yeah, well, the trouble is, Jez, that the, the, the more books we read, the more we find, oh, my goodness, that happened here as well. How are we going to fit that in? You know, I mean, the walk, our, our walk used to be an hour and a half. I now go for at least a day. <laughs> I, can go, I can take a, I once took a pregnant woman on a three and a half hour walk, <laughs> at the end of which I wrote to her friend saying, I am so sorry. But her friend said, no, 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 she hasn't stopped thanking me. She hasn't stopped talking about that walk. Um, the trouble is there's so flipping much stuff in the city of London, because, of course, the city of London, the Roman bit of London was London. And you have stories of, um, you know, Matthew Henry talking about traveling from Hackney into London uh, and uh, and Wilberforce going from Kennington up to Westminster. And you realize London used to be tiny. You know, Hackney is now central London, but um, or, or certainly in a in a city London. So um, the, uh, the the stories are so very many. Uh, that you can, I can, within one city walk, I can reference, you know, we start always with Wycliffe and uh, then we go on with uh, Wesley, Tyndale, Wilberforce, Whitfield. We come on to Spurgeon. I came, I tell you one story we came across lately. I couldn't believe this one, Jez. It was quite shocking. I have walked past a particular church site, which I probably walked past with you. And I've done it, I've walked past it many times. And <laughs> <laughs> to my astonishment, I learned this story, which I'll now tell you. There used to be a church building on that site, 
And in 1626, one of the greatest minds in the history of Christianity was living in London, in the city of London, in uh, Smithfield. Uh, he had already made a stand based on theological principle and had left Oxford University and had come down to London because he was making a protest on theological principle. However, this young 26-year-old man, when he arrived in London, he found himself uh, uncertain of his own standing with God. He found himself insecure in his own salvation. He was unsure whether he was the one, he was one of the ones who was tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And he started to, what was used to be called sermon gadding. He started to go and visit church after church after church, listening to popular preachers, trying to get some sort of assurance, something like uh, people might do now with podcasts. And he went to a, this particular church to listen to the famous preacher, Edmund Callamy. He sat down and then the announcement was given, Edmund Callamy cannot preach today, there's been some trouble. At which point we're told most people got up and left, but he didn't. The history says he was well seated, <laughs> which probably means he just couldn't be bothered. He couldn't be bothered to get up. He was not in a good place in himself. And he thought, I'll just sit here. And he was uncertain. He had no, he didn't have a transcendent purpose. And then an unknown country preacher climbed up into the pulpit, a man whose name has been forgotten by history. And he prayed fervently and opened the Bible to Matthew chapter 8 and preached from verse 26. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, you will remember, of course, that the man who said those words, he said his next words to a storm, which he told to stop, which it did. The young man sitting in that pew, he counted his conversion from that day. You see, what that man preached was not, you must have a big faith, you must have an intense faith, you must have a consistent faith, you must have a faith you can feel. No, he preached, it's not about the sort of faith you have, it's about the one in whom you put it. It's about the one in whom you put it. See? It's about the one who the Father sent. It's the one who died and rose. It's the one who the Holy Spirit glorifies. It's the one who calms the storm. Now, the name of that young man was John Owen. And he then wrote 24 volumes of works. And they all hinge at that story. They all hinge at that gospel. It's not about what you bring. What you bring was never going to be enough. It's about what he brought. It's not about your consistency. He was consistent. It's not about your work. He did the work. It's not about your feeling. He has done what was required. And um, of course, he. Uh, the irony, Jez, is that John Owen is considered to be the sort of dotting of I's, crossing of T's theologian. But you will see, if you, if you were to read the books that were written before his, and the books after, you will see that again and again, he's puncturing the bubbles of scholastic Calvinism 
And he's showing, no, 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 no. I'm able to play those games with you, but let's see Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him? And you might read his works on communion with God. And you read him saying things like, the worst thing you can do to God, the worst thing you can do to the Father is doubt that he loves you. You read him saying, yeah, 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 be killing sin, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. But you try doing that by your flesh. You try killing sin by your flesh. You can't. You need the Spirit. You need the Spirit. And what does he do? Well, he glorifies Jesus. That's what he does. You need him. So that was just one of the many stories which we which we've uh, which we love to tell. And um, you see, as as I'm sure you remember, Jez, when we tell the stories, frankly, we do not bother to tell any stories which don't have a powerful application. So um, so lately, for example, I have discovered that uh, Stephen Charnock, uh, he was preaching in a particular place which I walked nearby, but I can't yet find anything to say about Stephen Charnock, which <laughs> so I'm, reading, <laughs> I'm reading through his works, trying to, trying to get a handle on them um, so he can bring something out. But the point is, you see, uh, so when we're talking about, you know, um, Tyndale, we're really talking about you need a Bible. You know, because William Tyndale, he dies to get the Bible out in English for the people. And, and, and we talk about uh, how if you don't have a Bible, you're not just going to guess it. Honestly, you're not just going to guess it. You know, I was at a meeting recently where someone got off and she said, um, I just feel, and this was this person, woman was speaking at a, at a meeting. I just feel that God says this and feel that God says that. And if I feel that, then you should this, that and the other. I'm thinking, mate. What you feel and what the Bible says may not be the same thing. <laughs> and sure enough, this person would say all kinds of things. I'm thinking, no, no, that's not going to be helpful. And then this same person went on to say, yeah, I'm struggling with depression. I'm thinking, I tell you what, mate, you start building your life on what you feel, that's going to happen. You're going to see death in life, as Paul calls it. You need to be standing on what Jesus says, on what the Bible says. And uh, that was what we talk about with Tyndale. And similarly, you know, when we tell the stories of John Newton serving in that little church I've taken you to, and uh, you see him preaching, having been saved out of the evil of being a slave trader. But then just sitting there, and when we I have you sit there in that little church building, 120-seater church building, I talked to you about how William Wilberforce walked in there, used to hear Newton preach in that very building. And it was hearing that preaching, it was having taken Newton's advice, that Wilberforce felt burdened to fight the slave trade. And I say, look, this is about, this is about the local church. See the solution to the world. They say, if you want to know what, what is the wisdom of God, how do we... What is the wisdom of God? You know, how do we learn the wisdom of God? Well, we learn it from apologetics books. We learn it from, you know, <laughs> some clever new theory. No, the wisdom of God, what demonstrates the wisdom of God is a local church. Ephesians 3, the church. So, you know, in each story, we're essentially preaching a, a powerful gospel truth mm. using an example of someone who stood on it and exemplified it in their time and that's the usefulness of church history and it is amazing and so inspiring um 
Uh, we're recording this at the start of 2022, where inevitably people are having conversations about New Year's resolutions and what we're going to do to change the world or change ourselves. But I think as your stories bring us back to time and time again, that's the whole point. We cannot change ourselves and we cannot change the world. We're actually indebted to and desperately in need of a saviour. Um, actually, I had a conversation with Ellis Potter recently. I don't know if you know him. He's a former Zen Buddhist monk. Uh, for this podcast and he said he said christianity is not a religion because it, the word religion means to join together it's about man trying to join himself to god whereas actually god came to us that's the whole point <laughs> we cannot join ourselves to god he has joined himself with us and we are living in a society that um like you said when it comes to the slave trade we think oh the slave trade was abolished and we forget how it happened or what the what the philosophy and thinking was that led to the abolition of the slave trade we're living in a society that's forgotten and thinking it can just live without its its christian thinking and you i know you take us to the the shaftesbury center or you talk to us about the eros statue can you remind us of that story yeah, the shocking. I think exactly as you say, we, we forget. And I tell you what, though, Jez, I honestly think it's not so much just forget. I do under forget is too weak a word. It's like willful. It's willful. So now we're told how wicked Christians are because Christians did the slave trade and justified slavery. And you say, just okay, all right. So you're saying Christians propagated slavery. Okay. Why do you think slavery is a bad thing? And you tease it out, tease it out. Let's go back to, okay, the reason you think it's a bad thing is because you live in a world which has been so flavored by Christianity that we now see, hang on, that's, yeah, that's wrong. So you see, how did it end? Well, it ended when Wilberforce, the Christian, tasted and saw the Lord is good. And he said, I'm going to fight the slave trade. And with a bunch of, uh, uh, and, and, and he was so, he managed to get it done by incredible graciousness. If you heard of, the film uh, 12 Years a Slave that came out recently, Cumberbatch plays the character of a Baptist minister who the guy who was the slave, who was treated to intense injustice, awful injustice. This guy who was a slave said this man who, who was a Baptist minister who owned me. He says, I, I, he said something like I've never met such a wonderfully gracious Christian man. So you see, what, what's going on there? Or what you can see is this. There were, there were people who were good people who saw slavery is, uh, it, to, to overthrow slavery, well, it would be, it would be like overthrowing. Well, put your, you know, enter your social evil here. I would put abortion. So it would be like overturning abortion. Imagine how massive that would be, except it was worse than that. You know, it was more prevalent to the extent that a Baptist minister with a, with a, with a smarting conscience owns a slave. So the, 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 when it comes to actually forgetting things, the most, the most shameful act of forgetting that we see in the city of London, of course, or in London, is that one of the most famous, um, well, I'll go back a bit, if in London, if you used to want to heat your home, you would have to have a fireplace. <laughs> and if you had a fireplace, you had a chimney. And if you had a chimney, chimneys used to get, used to get dirty, they get blocked. And so there were chimney sweeps. And of course, whenever I say chimney sweeps, I always see people smile, you know, especially American guests, because <laughs> they're thinking of Mary Poppins. They're not thinking that a chimney sweep was allowed to have a, uh, an apprentice as young as eight. But also they're not thinking that that 
age limit was never checked. And so you would have four-year-old boys pushed up chimneys by older boys and dying and getting maimed and dying of a particularly painful cancer. And But then one man ended that. One man fought that, a Christian politician, and he ended it. <laughs> also, all over London, you find uh, there used to be these shameful institutions called uh, mental asylums, where mentally ill people were locked up and locked and chained to walls. <laughs> They'd be put in beds without bend linen, just straw. They, they say you put your head through the doorway of one of these places and you would retch because of the smell. Um, but this one man, this Christian politician, fought that and he ended that as well. Also, all over London, you used to have, um, if you had ch children, well, you might be able to get a, um, <laughs> an education if you had some money. But if you're from a very poor family, if you're from a, a single parent family, if you're an orphan, there was no one to teach you. But some retired clergy and London City missionaries set up an organization called the Ragged Schools, and they taught these boys for free. And um, this one man, this Christian politician, he got behind that and endorsed it, and he became their patron um, uh, honorary president. And they became such a massive success that they say in the end, 300,000 boys were educated through the Ragged Schools. And uh, not only so, but and some would go on to become mayors of their towns and so on. But significantly, that shamed the government. And the government decided, oh, free education is a good thing. And um, see, that man was involved in many other, many other initiatives of that sort. And when he died, uh, the 1st of October, 1885, six days later, they say there was a funeral in Westminster Abbey. And on that day, all of London mourned. Um, boys were seen holding signs saying, a stranger, but you gave me rest. Or naked, but you clothed me. Uh, the name of the man was Anthony Ashley Cooper, but he's remembered by his title, the Earl of Shaftesbury. And it was decided, just two, two weeks after he died, it was decided that they would put up a, a memorial for him in the busiest place in London so that no one would ever forget what Shaftesbury had done for London. And they put it up, they built it. It's in the busiest place in London. If you go past it today, they say, if you stand there long enough, you would see the whole world go past. Everyone knows this memorial, but nobody remembers Shaftesbury because Londoners prefer to give it a nickname Instead of calling it the Shaftesbury Memorial Fountain, it is now known as Eros. And it sits there at Piccadilly Circus in the busiest place in London. But as you say, forget. People forget. I don't know if it's forget. I think people prefer, let's call that thing after the Greek god of sexual love. That's a bit more attractive to us. That's a bit more uh, alluring. That's a little bit more exciting than this Christian who gave everything of himself that he might bring about a change to help people who had nothing because he believed. You see, he said, he said, he said, no man, depend on it, can persist in a life of virtue and generosity unless he is drawing from the fountain of our Lord himself. See, Shaftesbury wasn't just some politician who went to church. 
It was Shaftesbury who, uh, Shaftesbury was tasting and seeing the Lord is good. And he brought about nation change. And there's no question about that. I mean, if you heard, listen recently, uh, Jeremy Paxman was on the radio and he, he was asked to, to talk about a great life from English history. And he chose Shaftesbury and broke down during the show. Such was the, uh, the, the, the power and the poignancy of his story. But is he ever taught about? Is he ever talked about? No, 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 no. Because he's a or whoever, you know, Christian, man, you know, white, aristocracy. No, he was someone who tasted and saw the Lord is good. And, uh, and we were supposed never to forget him. That, that memorial in the middle of London is supposed to remind us of him. So, yeah, there's a forgetting. But Jesus says, you know, they'll hate you. They will hate you, he says, because <laughs> their deeds are evil and they prefer the deeds of darkness than light. Yeah, so that's one of the many, many stories we love to tell uh, that all points us to, to, the, to the, the, the potency of faith in Jesus. Mm. And I think it is that that, you know, you get as you walk around. And I suppose it's one of the things that perhaps motivated you in getting into it, really, encouraging Christians to not to not be subject to the collective amnesia of our age that would just want to drink from the present and forget everything else just indulge in the pleasures of now and numb your mind into oblivion and just consume and consume and consume and consume whereas i think what you do is in retelling these stories you're reminding brothers and sisters all over the world this is what it this is what happens when you drink from christ and it's so so beautiful so powerful yeah yeah well that's it i think i think it was piper who said what brings pastors down isn't alcoholism and adultery it's discouragement and uh, I find the whole gospel, it keeps hinging at this, your hearts, keeping your hearts, encouraging your hearts. And frankly, we need encouragement. And the wonderful privilege we have, Jez, is taking the people, <laughs> you know, I welcome guys uh, into London. We've standing on the top of St. Paul's steps, feeling like we're part of a crazy little religion. And by the end of it, we're saying, our people changed this. And they had, all they had in their hearts was my Jesus. They have the Jesus, the, the Jesus that I believe in. Jesus I talk to and the encouragement the provocation is that we might remember and consider and then imitate their faith that's why that's right yeah you, you touched on something that I know I, I found very encouraging when we went to the church that John Newton ministered out of for several decades wasn't it yeah as you touched on it then he um it was a church that seated 120 people you know, when we live in we live in an age obsessed by success and we count success in terms of size of congregation. And so, so I have a question. Well, one, I find that very encouraging for, for people who are pastoring, regardless of the, the size of the flock that you're looking after or attending. It's actually a holy people, whether it's a holy people of 200 or 50. So I find that hugely encouraging. Um, how many of these individuals do you think had their mind and eye on global transformation, worldwide reform, or how many of them were just trying to love the individuals in front of them with the gospel? What's your ref reflections on that? Yeah. That's, well, there you go, Jess. I love it. I love that. That's a wonderful, that's a pastor's question. That's a, that's a precious question. The um, One of the things we talk about when we go to the British Museum, we see... Um, we go through the items that will have been seen and held by Bible characters. And we go past a place where Esther will have seen. We go past an image that Esther will have seen in the palace of Xerxes at uh, Susa. And we talk about the fact that, yeah, um, the Bible characters 
some of them are Joshua, you know, and they, I'm going to, oh, Caleb, you know, imagine Caleb, gosh, what a guy. Um, I'm as vigorous at 80 as I was at 40, he says. And, um, and you see the sons of thunder and these guys, let's go for it. Let's make something happen. You see? And then, uh, and then you get Esther and she's, you know, the Jews are all going to be killed. And Mordecai comes and says, maybe you can say something. <laughs> maybe that's why you're here. And she says, what does she say? She says, yes, I'll do it. No, she doesn't. She says, she's very afraid. She's just a scared girl. You know, she's just a scared girl. But she says, I know where there is help. And she says, get them to fast for me. And the Jews go and fast and uh, for three days. And then she approaches the king and she's put her faith in the Lord. And it seems the Lord gives favor. And uh, through what she says, yes, the Jews are saved. And and the point I make when I tell that story in the British Museum is, yep, there are Wilberforces and there are Shaftesbury's and there's Brother Lawrence as well. Yeah, so there's a guy who does the cooking and the washing in a, in a monastery. And he has a friend who's depressed and he writes him notes saying, look, when I'm working, when I'm cooking, I just remember Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He says, so, um, so while I'm cooking, I practice his presence. I talk to him. And, um, and these letters, they encouraged his friend and they were later published as a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And he said, well, what great thing happened through Brother Lawrence? You know, presumably he became terribly famous. Well, no, he washed some more dishes and cooked some more meals, and then he died one day. And you see, the, the, the fact is, um, some of us will be Wilberforces, and some of us will be Shaftesbury's, and some of us will be, uh, some of us will be Esther. But in, both, in all their stories, you know, we're told at the end, there's going to be a throne, and around the throne are elders. And then we're told, I mean, what an incredible honor to be an elder around the throne of Jesus, you know, chosen to be one of the elders. We're even told what they do. You know what they do? They throw their crowns down and they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. You see, the glory goes to Jesus. The glory goes to Jesus. So the people we talk about, they, they, you find most of them, they say, let my name die, but let the name of Jesus live. You say, you see Whitfield saying, on my gravestone, I want you to write, here lies George Whitfield. What sort of a man he was will be seen at the last day. They lived with one foot in eternity. And while they were hated by believers and unbelievers, which they were, they knew their Redeemer lives. They knew he's worthy of praise. And they knew, therefore, therefore, they said, we will stand. And they went in that purpose and in faith in his name so yes uh, you'll tend to find that the people we talk about are uh, they don't know <laughs> that we now name our children after them that's beautiful wow that uh, is very very inspiring uh, i've just um finished reading a biography of dietrich bonhoeffer and um and there's something he said that really stood out to me where he said people who are concerned with success will have nothing to do with a crucified messiah that the, the the way of christ is actually it looks like the opposite to a worldly form of success and it can be so easy for many of us to take our encouragement and therefore suffer our discouragement when we don't 
reach the metrics of the world's success, whatever that looks like, um, financial gain or large house or large church as a pastor, whatever. And and yet you're right. These people who we really, we name our children after them. We remember them. We name statues after them are people who, who said, well, I, I'm not really prepared to judge who I am. It will be revealed on the last day. You know, I'm not worried about myself, my ego, my name. What's that? It's nothing. And I think when you, when you see Christ, it gives you something bigger to live for than your own ego and your, even your own reputation, which seems to be the trap that um, is not a, not a modern one only, but it seems to be the one that um, we're all ass assaulted with every day with social media, perhaps, but the, the, the celebrity cult of our age. Um, how, what are some of the ways that you cultivate acro across your week? What are some rhythms that you've put in place to help you um, make sure that you're not you know, being led astray or deceived by the spirit of the age? How have you kept your love for Christ hot? Those sorts of questions and insight into the, the life and heart of Ben Verga. What are some practices that you do? <laughs> you know, so, I said, my, someone said, actually, I am supposed to be, funnily enough, I am supposed to be working on a couple of books at the moment, can you believe? But my children said, you should write a book. And I said, you know what? I don't think there's anyone out there who's saying, I wonder what Ben Virgo thinks about anything. <laughs> But um, but I will say because I think there's value in it, um, it the importance of getting a a coherent understanding of what the Bible teaches is invaluable. Um, when Dr. Lloyd Jones said all preaching must be theological, he didn't mean it must be complicated. He meant it must be about the God who we find throughout the text. And you will tend to find if you read the Bible. You have to read the Bible uh, with prayer. Lord, open my eyes to see wonderful things in your law. And you will start finding, you will start finding, uh, you'll start finding coherence. You'll start finding it making sense. And you will also find it breaks a lot of the stuff you thought it was going to say. Oh, my word, I'm sure I'm not, any believer will know that. All these things that I thought it was going to say. And then you read a text where it says the opposite of what you thought. Ah, what do you do? In, the, in light of that, I found um, it extremely helpful um, to read uh, Jonathan Edwards. I find that the, the usefulness simply being he rejoices in the God-centeredness of God. And that, that has been so, so helpful. It, Jesus doesn't just come to the world because he says, oh, poor you. He says, no, I want you to come into what I'm about. Um, so what I actually do, as well as reading the Bible on a daily basis, um, I actually read a bit of Edwards every day. Um, I run the Jonathan Edwards Twitter page, as well as the Wilberforce <laughs> and the Whitfield and the Christian Heritage in London. And I, I read Edwards a bit every day, and I find him to be really helpful. Funnily enough, and this may sound terrible, but sometimes when I don't find any encouragement in the word, I sometimes find Wilberforce found something today, you know, <laughs> or I might found might find something Edward sounds today, or a little bit of uh, uh, who's the other one? A little bit of Newton every day. Gosh, my word, these guys are really helpful. Um, very practically, also, I would say uh, listen to John Piper's biographical talks. He used to do a biographical talk every year, and he did uh, over the years. He did loads of London's church heroes, but also he did um, C.S. Lewis and Edwards and Luther and Spurgeon and many others. They're gold, and they'll get you in a lot of trouble because you'll see. Oh, that's what I want. That's what I want. <laughs> you will start realizing things might have to change and they will be good things. they will be good things. I do encourage anyone to look them up. They're just on the website, desiring God forward slash biography. 
Yeah. So what I do is I have to search in the text. I tell you what, and if I'm not, if I'm not, if I'm not actually with the Lord daily, my goodness. Uh, Yongi Cho famously said, um, if I don't pray, if I miss my quiet time one day, says my wife notices. Two days, my secretary notices. Three days, my church notices. And I found uh, over Christmas, I uh, missed a couple of days. Good grief. We've had a meltdown here. Terrible crises. <laughs> All kinds of things. Because daddy isn't drinking in the right place. Daddy is not feeding his soul. You know, the husband is not being a good husband anymore. And if I know I have to be with the Lord, I have to, I have to be on my knees. Um, that's, that, that would be my plea to anyone hearing. Enjoy Jesus, please. What mm. a gift you have the opportunity to do so. Mm. And we forget this, the sheer privilege of knowing that when we pray, our father listens and he's attentive and he comes. You know, people, when we talk about prayer, people will often say, oh, it's hard. I don't know how to do it, which fine. That may be true, but <laughs> this is a privilege. He listens. You know, you can call him Abba. You can draw near to him as a child. What I mean, there's, there's nothing more delightful in life than that. Um, <laughs> Well, Ben, I mean, you've taken us on, on some wonderful tours into some inspiring stories of Shaftesbury and John Owen and John Newton. And leave us with just one more little nugget. Of, uh, maybe, you know, mention Jonathan Edwards there. People know him for the, as being the, the, the preacher of the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, who kick-started the Great Awakening in America. People know him perhaps because of his, his resolutions. Maybe that's a good place to start, his resolutions I resolve. But... Um, but what, what's something about Edwards that really fires your boilers and inspires you? I'll tell you one thing about Edwards, um, which a lot of people don't know, and it's that he later in life said, because he's famous for preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, he preached that sermon in which he talked about God's hatred of sin. And he talks in graphic terms. Imagine you holding a spider over a flame. Because, uh, because in that time, of course, they would have flames, you know, in old, old New England and America, they'd have fireplaces and, oh, a spider's jumped out and scared me. And you put it on the, you put it on the fire. He says, imagine that, imagine someone doing that. He says, the, the, the hatred that God has for sin is immeasurably greater. And for sinners, there will be, there will be justice. Now, what happens this, Ches, at the, at the end of that sermon, People were literally holding on to things for fear, for fear that they would slip into hell. But what's interesting, and what a lot of people don't know is this. He said later on in life, he said, I wouldn't do that again. He said, I didn't see, he said, I saw fruit from it. I didn't see lasting fruit. He said, where I saw lasting fruit was this, when I preached the beauty of Jesus, when I preached the beauty of Jesus. When I preached his love, when I preached his worth, when I preached his grace. And then he saw people's hearts change, warmed. They want him. I want him. I want him. And uh, that, if you read his previously unpublished sermons um, put out by Michael McMullen, or if you read the wonderful volume um, of paperbacks uh, of sermons called Knowing Christ, um, there are some wonderful sermons where he just you want to see he helps you to see Jesus. But I would encourage anyone listening to this, and I, I tell you this is not that hard to read uh, the religious affections. 
the religious affections, he essentially talks about, no, 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 no. I'll tell you what, you know, look, every pastor should read the religious affections, but i tell you what would be even easier, read charity and its fruits. He's talking about charity, you know, which is the word they use for love back then. He says, why? Why is this? It's the sum of all Christianity is love. The sum of all of it is love. And he preaches it straight out of the Bible. And he preaches it because that's what who, that's who God is. That's what he is like. And he convinces you, shows you the complete, uh, the, the zenith of all that God does for you is let you know his love. And he, it's when Jonathan Edwards says it, you think, oh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but the charity and its fruits is sermons. And you, you can read them as easily as anything. And they will really, really help you to get, to get, some ballast in the bottom of your boat you know when the wind blows a boat why doesn't it ever blow over because it's got a great big weight in the bottom called ballast and i tell you each one of you i think um, anyone listening to this will know what it's like when, when you get blown you know how, how am i going to stand you know i think everyone in the churches and we were talking about it earlier you know the pioneers like my dad who said well, my dad had people come up to him all through the years saying why are we still standing on gender? You know, everyone else has caved. And they're, and also good people are caving on this. And some, you know, they're growing. It's obvious that, you know, and my dad would just say, but we've got to do what it says in the Bible. And you think, uh, how did he hold that? Because well, he saw beauty in what God had said. He saw this is perfect. This is, this is symmetrical. This is, this is, this is glorious. And it's true get some ballast in the bottom of your boat because you're going to get pulled. You're going to get pulled. I mean, it, that gender one, that's going to be a big one. You know, imagine it. I mean, my daughter is in a, in a girl's school where a number of the girls say, oh, we're not girls anymore. And they mocked her for being what they called a straggart. Straggart. She was the straight girl. And that's, and you think um, that's, uh, that's the challenge of our time. So what are we going to do? Are we going to say, the Bible says you mustn't do that. Are we going to say, look, I've seen the whole broad picture of the text shows a beautiful Jesus. And his words are the ones which talk about what gender does and means. And, and are we going to rejoice in that? You know? <laughs> are we going to be able to convince people on the basis of a better story? Or are we going to, uh, are we going to be pushed and pulled when the winds blow? Yeah. So I would encourage... Uh, yeah, that's 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 terribly significant to get some ballast there. And Edwards will help you with oh, that. That's superb. Thank you. And actually, we'll put a, a list in the description to today of uh, many of the books that you've mentioned. And perhaps you can send me a list of recommended reading from today's podcast, biographies that yeah. Ben Virgo recommends. And then before long, we'll add to it books written by Ben Virgo. <laughs> that sounds so weird, doesn't it? Oh, ben, thank you so much for your time today. It's, uh, it's such a treat and privilege to talk to you. Bless you, Jez. I'm grateful to be asked. It's lovely to see you. I usually get to see you in person, but uh, hopefully that won't be too long either. No, we should be bringing groups again to the, to the cities. You're, presumably you're, you're open, you're back up and running, so people can book and come, can they? Oh, yeah, yeah. And suddenly it's getting, uh, it's getting all excitingly busy again, which is great. Less, less international, fewer international, but what's exciting is when British people come. Because, you know... Because we're preaching to people in our town, in our country, saying that this happened here, this happened here, you know. And it's not like God said, oh, I've gone that by. No, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. <laughs>